scripture reading this evening, this morning, is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Good morning, brother. It is a blessing and privilege to be here with you this morning. I'm thankful for the presence of each and every one, and thankful for the invitation for this gospel meeting. I'm very excited about it and thankful to God for this opportunity. It is our desire to pay attention to the Scriptures, those things that are breathed forth by God and that are perfect to teach us and instruct us for all righteousness and godliness, and to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, both individually and as a congregation, and as a body. Of Christ. As the brother just read for us, and as we considered in our um, morning class lesson, we are considered exiles and strangers on the earth. Our citizenship is not here on the earth. It is not a part of Babylon. It is not a part of America or any nation. We are to be considered sojourners. And it's amazing how many words in English that we have for that. Sojourn, pilgrim, exile, stranger, immigrant. All of these things describe our identity. It's very important that we adopt this identity. It's a matter of eternal life for us because the gospel calls us to submit ourselves to the King Jesus Christ. And as the brother mentioned in Lord's Supper talk, the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. So we have to ask ourselves fundamentally, to which kingdom do we belong? To whom do I present my loyalty and my fealty? The U.S., my state, my political party, my culture, my customs, or something greater. In this morning's lesson, I'd like to consider the concept of enduring as exiles. Having established the fact that we are exiles in a foreign land, the call that we now have is that we have to endure. We have to make it through. We're passing through, and we have to continue in this journey. So how do we do that? To examine this, I think that there's no better example to look to in terms of the embodiment of this concept than Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. So I'd like for you to turn to the book of Daniel, if you would, please. In Daniel chapter 1, we're going to consider three cases in the book of Daniel where Daniel and his friends, holy men of God, had to endure as exiles. They did not belong to Babylon, neither to Persia, but they had to continue in their quest and their service to God. And the first text that we're going to examine <coughs> pardon me, is Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Let's go ahead and read this text together. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has allotted your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking gaunt in comparison to the youths who are your own age? Then you who make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
please put your servants on test for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink and let our appearance be examined in your presence and appearance and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Verses 14 through 19. So he listened to them in this matter and put them to the test for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. And they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence and every kind of literature and expertise. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them and out of them, uh, all, and out of them all, not one of them was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. This is from the very beginning of Daniel. If we understand a little bit of the context, Babylon had gone in and overtaken Israel. And they had overtaken Judah and conquered everybody. And they had even taken captive people. They had removed them from their homes. And those who are of the royalty or those who are of the elite class in Israel, they were taken and then put to be part of the king's court, of Nebuchadnezzar's court. And so here we have these young men who are considered to be the best of the best. And they are far away, a long way from their customs, a long way from anybody else in, in the service of the greatest king of the world at that time. And the king himself picks out what these men are going to eat. But it's defilement for them. It's meats like pork or seafood, things that they are not supposed to eat as law-abiding Jews. But who's going to know? Who's going to judge them? Nobody. So immediately in the book of Daniel, we have this, yes, historical case, but it's presented to us and preserved to us by the Holy Spirit to teach us something. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these things are written to us as examples. We're supposed to learn from this text. What is it to, that we're to learn? Well, Daniel and his friend, as we later note them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are literally exiles in a foreign land. But also they are spiritual exiles because they serve Jehovah in a land that is filled with idols, a land that is filled with authoritarianism and idolatry and all the contaminations that would be possible in the world. But these men, instead of just giving in and going with the flow, they operate out of conviction. And the lesson that I believe that we're supposed to learn from this first text is that we're not to contaminate ourselves with the world around us, but dedicate ourselves. It's interesting that we look around the world, and just like in Babylon, the world offers us many different lusts, many different ways that we can satisfy our desires. In 1 John chapter 2, John warns of this, that all that belongs in the world and that is of the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. But these things do not remain. They are just passing. But those who are known by God and who belong to God, they will endure forever. It's important for us to understand that, yes, the world is going to present things that look good and that everybody's going to be doing it. And it's going to have this tremendous amount of peer pressure and bandwagon approach that says, well, why don't you just join along? Whether we're talking about sexual immorality, whether we're talking about stealing, whether we're talking about lying, whatever the lust may be. These things are always in the world. And the idea of what John is presenting here is the same thing that was presented to Daniel and his friends. The lust of the eyes, all of these things that look good, the delicacies of the king, the lust of the flesh, that which can satisfy them, and the boastful pride of life. 
They didn't want to appear as being less than anybody else. And this is a fundamental, and I'm speaking about this because it's really important we as Christians wake up to viewing the Bible as these fundamental patterns of how the reality around us operates. Eve, all the way from Genesis, she was faced with these same things, with the temptation of, the, of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She saw that it was desirable to the eye. Uh, it was desirable because it could make one wise, the boastful pride of life. It was good to eat that which satisfied the flesh, and it looked good to behold the lusts of the eyes. All of these three are fundamental patterns of how Satan works to tempt us and are fundamentally the tools in which Babylon is going to try to press us into conformity. Because remember, Ephesians 6, as we talked about in the previous lesson, our struggle is not against Babylon per se, but is against the powers of darkness in the heavenly places. And how do they operate through this way? But it's interesting, if we take a stand and just like Daniel, we say, no, we're not going to contaminate ourselves with what the world has. We're not going to follow along in the same way. Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, that they are going to mock us. Babylon is going to seek to isolate us and to make us look like extremists. People who don't want to have any fun. People who, who are countercultural and not a part of everyone else. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, it says, For the time already is sufficient for you to have uh, carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having <coughs> pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's hard. It was hard for Daniel. It's hard for us to say, no, I'm not going to contaminate myself with that. The office has a drinking party. No, I'm not going to go and participate. Well, I might lose out on business. Understand. Everyone is looking at these dirty pictures. I'm not going to go and do that. Everyone thinks it's okay just to, you know, go along with governments and say, well, you know, we can't do this because the government told us. Or the government told us we have to do this and we just do it without asking first what God would have us to do. We let our culture dictate where we need to present our loyalty. If we don't march in step with everybody else, whether it's a political party or the nationalistic forces of our nation, we're considered to be unpatriotic. We're considered to be different. But guess what? That's how we should be. Undoubtedly, Daniel and his friends were considered to be outcasts in this. What? You're not going to eat the same things we do? Perhaps there was even allegations of arrogance thrown against them. Oh, you're too good for this. That's why you don't want to. And it's interesting when we encounter the forces of darkness and we choose not to go along with those, how there seems to be an animus that will even possess people. I don't know if you've ever seen a situation where someone who's addicted to something and they're around other people who are addicted to it as well, let's say smoking or drinking, and they kind of come to the, their senses, and they're like, you know what, this, this alcohol, this smoking, the tobacco is not good for me. I need to stop. How do the other friends react? They don't just say, oh, okay, good for you. Yeah, it's a bad vice. We all need to get better on it, and, you know, Godspeed in getting rid of that. No. Those who are engaged with it, they begin to circle the wagons. They're like, no, you need to do this. And it's almost as if an animus possesses them to the point they're like, no, you have to do this. Just take one smoke. Just drink this. It'll be fine. Just do it. And we've seen broader animuses like this as well, where society's like, just do it. 
What's the harm in doing it? Just give in. In ancient times, when in the book of Revelation, Christians were required to burn uh, a pinch of incense to Caesar to recognize him as a deity. And the Christians would not do this. It's just a pinch of incense. Not a big deal. Just get it over with. But they wouldn't contaminate themselves. They kept themselves different. And if we are to endure as exiles, brothers and sisters, we cannot mindlessly give in to the practices of the world around us, whether it be of culture, whether it be of government, whether it be of individual practice. We must be people who are guided by conviction. You know what? People respect conviction, even though it bothers them so much in their minds. You know, it can be something as simple as, well, just miss service for church. Just miss service for something else. I remember when I was in high school, I was part of a marching band, and we had a gospel meeting coming up. And I told the, the band director, I said, yeah, I'm not going to be here for these practices in this event. And he's like, well, this event has been scheduled for months. And I said, yeah, but I've got a gospel meeting that has been scheduled for years, and I'm not going to meet it, miss it. I wasn't preaching, I was just a member. I said, I'm going, no matter what, because that's first. Because the, the question of contamination, while it may seem like a simple thing of, well, are you going to do this practice or not do this practice? It's, it's actually something much larger. It's an entire spiritual battle of forces of good and evil to slip to one single moment. And Satan wants to convince us, oh, it's not that big of a deal if you choose to follow your conviction or if you just choose to follow the world. Daniel, it's not that big a deal. You're away from everybody else. You're in a different culture, a different place. When in Rome, do like the Romans, right? No. It's a huge deal. Because your choice to either contaminate yourself or dedicate yourself in conviction to the standard of God is everything about who you are, who has control over you, to whom do you present yourself as loyal and faithful. And Satan wants to say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just a little decision. But God knows that we have to keep ourselves unspotted by the world, which is what the exhortation is in James chapter 1, verse 27. The idea of the spottedness there is that we have contaminated, we have defiled ourselves. And the exhortation is that we engage in good works, helping the orphan, helping the widow, but that we also keep ourselves clean from the contamination of the world, just like Daniel did. And it's tough. If we consider ourselves to be a part of Babylon, then contamination doesn't seem that that big of a deal. Well, it's just culture. This is something that, as I moved to Puerto Rico and encountered a different culture, it was amazing how many things people would use as justifications for doing things that I considered unbiblical because, well, it's cultural. Oh, you know, drinking and all this kind of stuff, that's just cultural. Oh, seeking vengeance, oh, that's just cultural. And then it dawned on me, I was like, oh, I have those too. It's just a lot easier to be blinded by those when you're in the culture, right? Daniel had an advantage in the fact that he was being moved to a different culture, although granted there were disadvantages of that because he was all alone, in a sense. He could see in, in a form clearly. It's tough when we are trained and conditioned and raised in a culture to think this is how you do things. And then to break from that and say, no, I'm not going to present myself as a slave to that. I'm not going to bow down to that idol, that false god of the culture around me. This is informed, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in greater detail. 
But this is a manifestation of a battle of idolatry. To whom do you present yourself? And Daniel passes the test because he would not contaminate himself. He would not bow down to the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lusts of the eyes, and bow down to those idols of Babylon. Even if it was the king himself that dictated, he said, I will not do this. And God rewarded him for it. We have to dedicate ourselves. And when I talk about dedication, it is something that is different. What is the entire idea of dedication? It's holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, we are called to be holy as God is holy. The illustration I love to use with holiness is the idea of china. Caitlin has some china that is given by her grandmother. We don't eat on that every day. I don't get to eat on it if I just want to eat a plate of nachos. Why? It's dedicated. It's for guests. It's for special events. It's not something we're just going to use commonly. The idea in, in Christianity and Judaism as well, the idea of profanity is not making a distinction between that which is dedicated or sacred, holy, and that which is common. We are not to be common. We are to be holy and separate, as we read in 2 Corinthians 6 this morning. But when we just go and accept what the world does without any thinking, without challenging those false gods and assumptions, we contaminate ourselves and we present ourselves as unworthy, blotted by the world, and not ready to present ourselves to Christ. So this is the first battle that Daniel had, and the first thing that we must overcome as exiles. To start to view the world around us in different ways and recognize the idols that present themselves. Speaking of idolatry, this leads us into the second example in the book of Daniel. In Daniel, the third chapter, we're going to read Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. And this is a very popular text where we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up for the truth. <coughs> it says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They began to speak and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every person who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of musical instruments, is to fall down and worship the golden statue. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into the middle of a blazing, uh, furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who uh, they do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue <coughs> which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar began speaking and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of musical instruments to fall down and worship the statue that I made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what god is there that can rescue you from my hands? We see uh, later in verse 16 the answer to this challenge of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the uh, furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your uh, hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, 
nor worship the golden image, uh, golden statue that you have set up. We remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar receives this vision of the image of the different nations, of Babylon as the head of gold, per- Persia as uh, the silver bl- breastplate, Greece as the, the bronze thighs, and then Rome as the, uh, the nation of iron mixed with clay in terms of the feet. And we think about this, and the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image of gold. Why? Well, it seems pretty obvious the reason that he set up this image of gold was because he was puffed up and arrogant about the truth that was he, he was revealed to him. But not only does he set up this image, he then, in a totalitarian, authoritative fashion, makes everybody bow down and worship it. Well, for the Jews, this is clearly idolatrous and, and wrong, and they're not going to do it. And so other people are upset about this. There's no religious tolerance. There's no, there's no uh, classic liberalism to protect them, so to speak, or rights. They come and they say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you made this law. That everyone's supposed to bow down when they hear the music. And these Jews over here that you set up to work and your government in the province, they're not following the laws. So you know what needs to happen to them? You've got to get rid of them. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and he brings him forth, and he says, Look, I'm going to kill you, and there is no God that can save you from my hand. Listen to the arrogance, the full pride of life that comes from Nebuchadnezzar. How do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond? It's interesting, they don't compromise at all. They don't try to strike a bargain and say, Well, okay, maybe we've got this little problem with idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar. Could we maybe just... Do it in secret or maybe just kind of find another route to do it? No. They're defiant. They distinguished themselves. They were noteworthy. Everybody else was bowing down and they're like, no, we're not going to do this. This is wrong. Even at the risk of death, they were not going to compromise. Why? Because they had a priority of value that was greater than their own life. They understood that their own physical life belonged to God and was just a tool to be used in glory to Him. But this is, the, this is the battlefield for their heart, for the hearts of all people. Who are you going to bow down to? Compromise, the world says around. They do not like people of conviction that stand out. They are going to malign. They are going to push back against these people. They are not going to stand for it. But we need to understand that as Christians, we have to follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as Babylon continues in its cycle of the pattern as we talked about in the first lesson, and as it begins to become more authoritarian and more dictatorial and not having any room for anybody else and presenting itself as God, the extremes by which it will go will become more and more. Just like it did with Rome. Rome had the mark of the beast. You had to burn the pinch of incense to Caesar. And if you did not, you couldn't engage in trade. You couldn't have any interaction at all on a societal level. To the point where you'd be killed as well. There were inquisitions that were set up for Christians to be drugged in front of the rulers and tried to see if they would compromise. And the interesting thing, and this is very important to note about Rome, Rome didn't have a problem that Christians believed that Jesus was God. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that Christians believed uncompromisingly that Jesus was God and there was no other. All Rome said was, cool, you want to worship Jesus? Worship Jesus. 
But you also need to worship our Caesar. You also need to pledge loyalty to our political system. You also need to bow down to our culture. You can keep your Jesus all you want, but you need to submit to us. And Christians said, no, we're not doing that. Because Jesus is the only ruler. We will follow Rome in so much as it tells us to. In Romans 13, we'll pay our taxes, we'll live lawfully, but we are not going to bow to your idols, Babylon, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow to their idols. Well, we're going to kill you. We're going to make sure you can't conduct business. We're going to make your life terrible. Who can deliver you from the hand of Rome? Who can deliver you from the hand of Babylon? Who can deliver you from the hand of the U.S. government? Or from our culture, our political party, or whoever. And the amazing thing that I love about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story is they know they're probably going to die. And they said, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. We're not giving in. We're not compromising. And no matter the cost, this is the thing that we need to understand. We cannot give in to the idols around us. This is an issue of life or death. It is of extreme importance. It is the most important thing. This is the battle which we fight. It wasn't just about the idol. It wasn't just about the pinch of incense. This was a battle being fought in the heavenly places for the souls of those people. Who are they going to present themselves to as faithful? And it's interesting, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, they were facing this problem. The Christians were beginning to be more persecuted. And so what did some of them want to do? Compromise. Well, we're going to go back into Judaism where it's safer, where there's secure. We don't want to be out here on the fringe. We don't want to be the exiles. We don't want to be different and be seen as a target. So we'll retreat back into Judaism and be protected. And the writer says in verse 39, exhorting them, (coughs) but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. It's a commitment. It's a dedication. It's a distinction that we have to own as Christians. And our influence is going to have an impact. Like I said, people respect people of conviction. It's interesting. There are people that I don't agree with spiritually at all. Take, for example, Seventh-day Adventists. In Puerto Rico, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists. I think their their theology is completely wrong. I think they're going to have to stand an account before God on the Day of Judgment for their false teaching. But they will not work on Saturdays. They will not take a job that forces them to work on Saturdays. And I respect conviction. (laughs) The slang for the young people today is game, respect, game, right? Well, conviction, respect, conviction of form. I respect that a whole lot more than someone who has the right theology but contaminates themselves and compromises at every opportunity. And it's amazing that people can hold to false doctrine and be more dedicated and distinguished in their service to false doctrine than many of us can be in the service of truth. God help us. Our decision to live a life of purity and distinction has an impact on those around us. But when we go and compromise with the world and we look just like everybody else, it does a disservice and is damaging to the gospel call. One of the most disappointing things I've ever heard 
was when I was talking with a person of the world and we mentioned another Christian who actually attended the church where I did at the time. And this non-Christian was shocked. He said, wait a second. That guy is a Christian? I said, yeah, he attends church with us. He said, I would never have guessed that by the way that he talks. This brother made a compromise with the world around us. And in compromising, he lost his conviction. And in losing his conviction, he lost the ability to convict the world around him through his distinguished and separated example. The way forward for us, brothers and sisters, is to realize we should not bow down to the false idols. We must follow in the footsteps of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead of bowing down or compromising (coughs) with the false idols, we need to be able to identify them for what they are. Nobody likes to have their false gods identified. No one likes to have the idol, what they set up as something legitimate to be demonstrated as just this false construct. And people get angry when that happens. Think what happened with Paul in Ephesus when he demonstrated that Diana of the Ephesians was just this false construct and was the work of the devil, not really of God immortal. People got angry. People are going to get angry. And if we aren't convicted on it, we won't be able to set ourselves to the point of distinction to overcoming the trial. One of the things that is really interesting about the idea of encountering trials, and Brett Hoagland, who's a preacher up in Blue Springs, he mentioned this and taught this when I was really young and it made an impact on me. He said, if you're going through a storm in life, you don't find your anchor in the middle of the storm. You have to have your foundation before the storm comes, or else you're never going to find it. There's a sense in which if we aren't dedicated now, if we haven't distinguished our heart and made the decision when the chips are on the table, when the rubber meets the road, or whatever metaphor you want to use, when we are in a situation where there is skin in the game and there's going to be sacrifice to be made, We're not just going to automatically say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to compromise. We have to have this distinction now in our heart. And the conviction will guide us through. People are going to get angry. People are going to malign us. People are going to lie about us. People are going to persecute us. And increasingly more. Because we have moved radically in our society. And I've talked to my my dad and other people in older generations about this. I think I can say my dad's in an older generation now. And I've said, look, the the context that you grew up in is not the same as what we're growing up in. Many of you who are over 50, over 60, grew up in a place where a lot of people were Christian. Maybe the majority of people identified themselves as Christian who grew up in families that were complete, a complete nuclear family as what God would want. But our society has continued to denigrate and devolve. Just like what we saw in Romans 1. Just like what we see in Babylon. And there's no hope for that at all. And if you stand up and say, no, you know, I believe in the difference of male and female is how God created. I believe that it should be husband and wife. I believe that parents should teach their children. I believe these fundamental things that we see here, you're going to be called a bigot. 
You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be seen as closed-minded. People are even going to say that your, your speech is violence toward them. And there are countries in the Western world like Canada that you will get prosecuted for saying something as simple as what the Bible says, that homosexuality is not God's plan. It is not moral. There have been preachers who have been jailed for that. And we can stick our heads in the sand and ignore it, or we can have some false nationalistic romantic notion that, oh, the U.S. is going to turn around any day now and get rid of that. Or we can have the biblical approach and say, you know what? Those are false idols. We're in Babylon. We don't belong to Babylon, and we're not going along with that. So what do we need to do? Dedicate ourselves, distinguish ourselves, and make sure that we are living holy to God. The point in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked about the great commandment, is that we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and, and body. That is what we have to do. We have to dedicate ourselves completely to Him in that. And then all this other stuff that happens, it doesn't affect us. When I bring up the difference of how things were in our society 100 years ago, 50 years ago versus now, I don't do so in some nostalgic longing for, oh, if we could only go back to those days. That's not what my point is. I think the veil has been removed. And I think the things that are going on now, even with the situation in the last two years, I think there is a continued unveiling of what's going on around us. And we need to wake up. By the time this had happened in Babylon, the veil had been lifted. The idolatry was blatant. And therefore, the consequences became more severe. The same thing will happen to us as well. But if we are not dedicated, we will not be able to weather the storm. The last example I'd like to look at in the book of Daniel is when is actually not under <coughs> Babylon per se, but it's under Persia. But Persia, just like Babylon, follows the same pattern and course of Babylon. In Daniel, the sixth chapter, we see this, uh, the text of Daniel and the lion's den. In Daniel chapter 6, I'll read verse 3 through 16. <coughs> it said, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king intended to appoint him <coughs> over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel regarding government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption because he was trustworthy. And no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him regarding the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, and the satraps, the counselors, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who offers a prayer to any god or person besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it will not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Thereupon, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, when Daniel learned that the document was signed, he entered his house, and in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and offering praise before his God, just as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel offering a prayer and imploring favor before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction, 
Did you not sign an injunction that any person who offers a prayer to any god or person beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be thrown into the lion's den? <coughs> then the king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they responded and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the ex exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps offering his prayer three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed, and set his mind on rescuing Daniel, and until sunset he kept exerting himself to save him. Then these men came by agreement <coughs> to the king, and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that this is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or a statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and thrown into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you continually serve, will himself rescue you. In this situation... We, and almost all of us, know this story. Daniel and the lions did, right? That King Darius was tricked by the satraps and the governors to present this law. And we see, once again, the ugly head of authoritarian and oppressive idolatry raising up, just like it happened with Babylon, so it would happen with Persia. And they make this injunction that says, you will not pray to any god except for King Darius for 30 days. Now, how did Daniel respond? He didn't cower, but he regarded his discipline as being something that was a matter of conviction. That was something of matter of such importance that he would give his life for. He was disciplined to holiness. This text in Daniel 6 has been very convicting to me over the last couple of years. Daniel had seen so much. He was removed from his, from his homeland as a young man. He had encountered trial after trial, threat after threat. He had seen Babylon rise and fall. And now he's in the service of Persia. And here comes another attack by Satan. False idols rearing their ugly heads. Does Daniel try to compromise and say, well, it's only 30 days, I guess... I can go 30 days without it. You know, yeah, God wants me to pray, but God will understand if I don't pray for 30 days. It's more important that I don't lose my life. That way I can keep being a good influence. That he began to rationalize the dictates of the false gods and the authoritarian orders. No. Did anything change for Daniel? No. Why? Because Daniel, as a man of faith and holiness had disciplined himself. He daily prayed three times. It was his custom. It was like his law. I will pray to God. The king makes a law against that action. Does anything change Daniel? No. Nothing changes. Does Daniel go and cower? And is he afraid of what's going to happen? No. Why? Because he is disciplined. He knows exactly what's going to happen today, tomorrow, and the next day if God wills. He will be praying. It's amazing to see the dedication, the distinction, and the discipline of Daniel. He was an exile. He's even called an exile. The difference with Daniel is noted. When the satraps come, they say, oh, this exile from Judah will not bow down and pray to you. We found him praying to his God. What a compliment, right? If that be said of us. Oh, this Caleb, he's different. He thinks he's better than everybody else. He's, he's, 
different from us and he won't do the same thing. We found him doing an activity that we deem unsafe. We found him doing something that is not patriotic or fill in the blank. Yeah, because we're not going to bow down to your gods and we've disciplined ourselves. When I talk about discipline, it means like a routine, a practice, a dedication that is done. Discipline's not always corrective. And we'll talk more about the ideas of discipline Monday night when we talk about the battle for the home. But suffice it to say for now, discipline is a matter of training yourself. And it's important. We understand this from a physical aspect. If you're going to go run a race, you don't just go and stuff your face with ice cream and chips and sit on the couch all day. You got to get up and walk. You got to get up and run. You got to practice. My sons and I, we do a little bit of karate, and there's a competition coming up. And the, the, the teacher of karate always says, in the practice is where your championship is won or lost. Why? Because we have to discipline our bodies. We have to bring them into subjection. That when I want to move, my body's going to follow my order. I'm going to respond like that. And it becomes something that is just instant and reflexive and second nature because I have it under control. We think about this in a spiritual form. Our spiritual bodies, and our body is connected to our spirit, should be subjection to ourselves. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that he buffets his body. He trains it. He brings it into submission. To what? To himself, and more importantly, to Christ. But what would it look like if a runner said, yeah, I'm going to train for a race. I'm going to discipline myself to run 5K. And then the next morning, they get up, they wake up late, they don't have a routine. Instead of eating broccoli and, and chicken, they go and eat, you know, uh, little Debbie's and, and a bucket of ice cream. And then the next day, they do the same. They still haven't run. They have developed no routine, no discipline, no, like, restraint at all. You'd be like, you're lying to yourself. Who are you kidding? You're self you're not disciplining yourself. You're not training for anything. How many times do we have this situation as Christians? We say, oh, yes, we believe in godly discipline. We believe that we should be like Daniel. But we've set up no customs, no habits, no discipline in our life at all. That we're just living kind of like a ping pong ball going back and forth between all these forces, between all these schedules around us, between all the world events, and we have no consistency. We have no constancy to bring us through. Sunday might be our discipline. Wednesday night may be our discipline. But in our daily lives, we have nothing like what Daniel has. Daniel went through so much. Why? Because he was dedicated and disciplined to the Lord. And he didn't have to fear what happened with Babylon. He didn't have to fear what happened with Persia. Because he knew he was in exile, and he had disciplined himself for that. We need to stop listening so much to the news channels. We need to stop being so worried about things around us. And we need to be more dedicated in our discipline to God. More disciplined in prayer. Do you have a routine for prayer? If not, why not? I'm not arguing for some top-down, forcible thing. I'm not saying we have to establish some brotherhood rule. But you, personally, have you developed anything for Bible reading, for prayer, for meditation, for service? 
Is there anything that orients your life to the spiritual? Or do you just try to throw it in whenever you can? If you try to throw it in whenever you have time, it's clear who's operating your life. Daniel prayed three times daily. He was a governor, and yet he did that. He was busier than me or you, and he made time. And in that dedication and discipline, he found tremendous security and, and firmness to be able to pass through all these things. There's times where I'll talk to brethren, and they'll be so worried. They'll be like, hey, I was watching Fox News. I was watching CNN. Did you hear what was going on over here? It's crazy. What are we going to do? I'm like, well, we should be doing what we always do. If Babylon, America, falls, and there's civil war, and everything goes down, can you say that your life will not be really that affected? Sure, the economy will be affected. Maybe your job will be affected. Maybe your family members will be affected. But in terms of like a steadiness, a constancy, we shouldn't be affected. We should be firm. Why? Because our trajectory is already set. We're exiles. All the noise that goes around here, the nations that are enraged, as God talks about in Psalm 2, doesn't affect us. And we need to do a better job at this discipline. We need to be like Daniel in this text and not make compromises. I know this was really tough last year. And I never thought in my life I would ever hear the government outlawing church services. I know different states were different. I'm not exactly sure what happened here in Kansas, but let me tell you a little bit what happened in Puerto Rico. The government shut down everything on Sunday and said, if you are found outside your house on Sunday, we'll fine you $5,000 per person or up to six months in jail. Why did they choose Sunday? They didn't choose Monday through Saturday. They didn't shut down Home Depot, Sam's, Walmart, no supermarkets. They chose Sunday. Why? Because the government is fine with the idols of capitalism and commercialism to be continued to be propagated. But religion, submission to God and not to them, Puerto Rico wouldn't have that. It wasn't about the science. It wasn't about any of that. It was about submission to the government. And I never thought I would ever see that in my life. And I thought about this because there were a lot of people who began to justify and say, well, it's not for the whole time, Caleb. Brother in Puerto Rico said, yeah, but it's just for a little bit. We can find other ways to do it. Did Daniel do that? Did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do that? And I'm not here to judge anyone on their response to COVID. I'm not here to say that I have the answers. I believe in autonomy of local congregations. I think they decide those things. But what I am against is idolatry. And we would be ignorant to think that there were not idols that were warring for our submission over the last two years. That doesn't mean that we don't follow protocol. It doesn't mean we don't submit to Rome as far as we can, but we have to be real about the things that are out there. And COVID is passing, thanks be to God. I was telling Sean, this is the first time I've preached without a mask in two years. Puerto Rico is still masked up to the hill. And that's fine for them if they want to do that. And we follow the laws. And the point is not to focus on COVID, but hopefully to open our eyes to the idea that 
Babylon is going to try to put forth an idol. And it's probably not going to be vaccines or masks or COVID-related. Because in the future, it will be something different. But we should be reflective and honest with ourselves, regardless whatever position we take on these individual things, that we understand that our actions should not be changed. Was it right for brethren in Puerto Rico to stop worshiping together and assembling for a year? No, it was not. And I know that's really unpopular to say. Daniel, when his life was at stake, got up and prayed three times again. There's a consistency of faith that helps us navigate the tumultuous waters around us. But we have to be disciplined to see this. Escalation will rise when we do not submit and cower to Babylon around us. And once again, before anyone gets too spicy with me, I'm not trying to make any statement about COVID, not trying to judge anyone on that at all. But whatever your position is on it, just be self-reflective and ask yourself, were there idolatrous forces going on? Did you bow down to an idol? Did you sacrifice your spiritual discipline for things that were around? I'm not here to judge you. This is an, an investigation together. I know that I can say I did, and I regret it. I wish I would have had more spirit like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The importance of this is understanding that when escalation arises and authoritarian efforts to squelch our hearts, they force a response out of us. But the question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to cower? Are we going to compromise? Are we going to contaminate ourselves? Are we going to stand up and say, no way, I'm not bowing down to an idol? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love and discipline. The way that we overcome this is setting our course and developing habits and practices individually and collectively as a local congregation that are going to help us embody the commitments and the distinction that we are trying to make as a people of God and remain faithful to those. Not blindly following custom or tradition, but disciplining ourselves to making sure that we're dedicating and we have our right priorities where they should be. Daniel did, and he had developed a practice for that. Daniel wasn't trying to say, oh, all, all Jews must do this, but he had found the embodiment of the practice of faith, and he followed it without compromise. We have to do the same thing. If we are going to say, yes, God has given us a spirit of, uh, not given us a spirit of timidity, but a power and love, we have to include the last part of discipline. Are we really disciplining ourselves? And we're going to talk more about this with social media on Tuesday. We're going to talk more about this, about idolatry on Thursday, and about the home on Monday, and about pornography on Wednesday. we got to be honest. Because one great thing about the COVID crisis is that it has given people an opportunity to pause. And in the book of Revelation, it's amazing that God has given people so many times to stop and to repent and to change. But what happens with Babylon in the book of Revelation? Instead of encountering this great plague or encountering this great crisis, Rome doesn't say, hmm, maybe we should reorient ourselves. Maybe we should follow God. Instead, 
They curse God and continue in their practice. If we continue in our practice of not disciplining ourselves to righteousness, of not dedicating ourselves in that capacity, we may not curse God, but we can certainly ignore Him. And this should be an opportunity for us to awaken and to renew our zeal and desire. When we think about disciplining (coughs) ourselves, Paul and Silas are great examples. When they were imprisoned in Philippi in Acts 16, what did they do? They sang hymns. And that should be what we do as well. We should present ourselves in that way. Having discipline to encounter any trial. This last, these last two years have reignited my passion for prayer. And now when I face a challenge, I have a discipline that I go through. And I think this is something that is a fundamental pattern of how we need to orient our lives. And if you don't have a discipline at all, of either Bible reading, service, prayer, meditation, you need one. You really do. Daniel had one, and we need to develop that as well. Not just coming to church services, not just Wednesday night, but something that we can rely upon day in and day out and say, this is how I am going to be defined. So which is the path that you will choose? There are only two paths. Jesus mentions this. Apostle Paul mentions this. This is a fundamental pattern that we see in Scripture. Two paths. That's it. You have one choice, two options, nothing else. You can choose the way of assimilation with Babylon. That is of contamination, compromise, or cowardice. Or you can choose the path of distinction of the exiled elect. That is of dedication, distinction, and discipline. Which is the path? that you are going to choose. This decision is yours. It's a decision also for this congregation. As we first dedicate ourselves, then encourage one another to be uh, dedicated, we move from the center outward in terms of our work and efforts. But it has to start with you. Nobody can make the decision for you. You alone will do it. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you've already made your choice up to this point. You've Chosen the path of assimilation with the world. But that is a path of death. There is no hope along that path. There is sacrifice. There is difficulty. There is suffering in the path of the elect, of the exiles, of the strangers, of the immigrants. And it is a path of hardship. But it is the only path that leads to life. It is the only path through losing yourself you will find your salvation. It is the only path through loss you will gain victory. It seems ridiculous from the point of the world. Why not compromise? Why not do what we do? Why not just bow down? But the call of the exiles is to put yourself on a different trajectory. And if you aren't a Christian, you need to understand this. This invitation to be an exile is for you. There's no special group of people that only get to be exiles. The invitation is to every single person, every single human. And God calls you to that. Why will you not do that now? You can come and do that by choosing to accept Christ, by following His gospel, which begins with your repentance and your faith and your salvation. That is that you need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to repent and turn from your sins. You need to confess Christ as the Son of the living God. That is, you are speaking with God that there aren't other idols, that He is your Lord, He is your King, and you will submit to Him. And then you are brought into baptism. 
where you come in contact with the blood of Christ and you are buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And then that newness of life is a life of exile until we reach the promised land, until we reach our home in the new heavens and new earth. God awaits us there, but we have to continue on in perseverance. And if you are not a Christian, we invite you to make that decision and to come and be a part of the happy exiles. Or if you are a Christian, perhaps you've compromised. Perhaps you haven't followed the example of Daniel and his brethren, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Change your life now. Develop the discipline, distinction, and dedication that God calls you to. We're here not to judge you, not to say we're better than you, but to help one another along this way. As pilgrims together, we can stand stronger together united and convict one another and exhort one another by the power of the Spirit. If you're struggling with that or anything today, please let us know. We are here to help you. And if we can help you in any way, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.